This is The Lack with Helen Rollins, Benjamin Studebaker, and Nina Power. This week, we're doing a documentary from the year 2000 called The Eyes of Tammy Faye, and the theme is scapegoats. Helen, kick us off. Okay, so I've just made notes, no essay this time, and it's not very well organized. So hopefully I'll come to a point by the time I I get through all these points. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about the year in which this film was made, the epoch it was made, the epoch of the events, and then the character of the woman herself, the protagonist of this documentary. So yeah, the the 80s, the epoch during which the um, Tammy's cancelling happened, Tammy and her husband Jim Baker's cancelling happened. The 80s, it's very different to today. Often I think because, you know, it's an era of um, technicolor television and gadgets and, you know, people driving cars and things like that. We can, we can see, obviously, things change, things stay the same. There's many things that are very similar, but there was a very different um, set of issues within society and within um, the political economy, for instance. Even though, you know, we're still within capitalism, we're still in modernity, whatever. Um, so I think that maybe the first thing to say is, obviously the aesthetics of these people who were canceled at this era um, are very different to those who might be canceled and excluded from the system today. So as uh, so many people, but uh, René Girard obviously um, talks a lot about, I'm sorry, not, and Levi Strauss, I always like just interchange these two people. They're very different with some similarities. Talk about the scapegoat a lot. And so um, we often all get, well, we as societies organize um, our uh, logic, obviously there's contradiction that undercuts everything, into a system that has a necessary enemy that sort of seals the system in place. So the outsider at this time in the southwestern United States, in um, a time when uh, church was tied to state, just we were talking the other day about how corporation is tied to state now. So there are some similarities in certain ways, but the, the outsider is very, very different. So I don't want to seem like I'm saying, like, um, you know, those that wokeness identifies as outsiders are outsiders today, because what we often do politically with the aesthetics of the left to sustain the system is to turn our gaze to the history and say, oh, look, this was a, this, it, well, this was a problem and it still is a problem. And we, we focus our eyes on this shadow boxing from the past rather than focusing our gaze on what the problems are in um, the day and age in which we exist. So I don't want to talk about sort of, um, obviously Tammy was uh, one of the first people that interviewed somebody with AIDS on television and was very, very welcomed by the gay community in the 80s, 90s and noughties. Um, and so, you know, maybe we can, when we have, we're in an era with pride flags being being waved on atop of the um, main school tower at Eton College, for instance, you know, this is, this is a different era. This is a different era. And so the, the neutered version of the emancipation, the emancipatory message of Tammy Faye is different. So I wanted to talk a bit more about the sort of the undercurrents rather than the aesthetics. When we, when we engage in woke non-politics, we are caught up in the Lacanian imaginary rather than the symbolic. And that is to get caught up in aesthetics rather to, than to to understand the underpinnings and the movements that generate an aesthetic um, emergent. I also kind of quite like uh, the religious world, <laughs> even though I've never, been I've never been brought up religiously in any way, but there is obviously an honesty to, 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 to overtly religious people. As Lacan tells us, God is unconscious. The liberal humanist has really um, descended the God figure 
into the image of the human themselves, um, which is perhaps even more dangerous than a religious person that sees themselves as divided, but sees an external God as whole and complete. We have to get to a point of saying that there is no whole and completeness anywhere. Um, so what was it about Tammy that made her cancelled at this time? And why does somebody like Tammy have to be cancelled? Well, Tammy was actually doing God's work. If you kind of understand what the message of Christianity in a sort of Paulinian sense um, was, which was to not turn contradiction into opposition. She says at one stage, um, see if I have it here, about somebody that she doesn't see anybody. Oh, I've written it down somewhere. Ah, I can't see. But she she refuses to see, for example, a gay person who in this era of intense um, sort of, we talk about conservatism, slightly different from evangelicalism, but there is a conservatism to it. Um, that say those people who were homosexual and excluded from the church, you know, she refused to see these people as anything other than human beings. So furthermore, I mean, they were, they were cancelled for their being profligate essentially, but of course the whole um, uh, evangelical televangelist world was being extremely profligate at that time. So um, she was cancelled for the contingent appearance of doing wrong. Obviously, when we are, uh, for instance, when people are cancelled today, something, to, some, some contingent aesthetic wrongdoing will be chosen and magnified to a level of essential um, crime. Um, so, you know, the, the fact that they were sort of overspending on the creation of this place, Heritage USA, this Jesus theme park. Obviously, I mean, I know this topic like very well, so I have a million different statistics about it. For instance, they were earning in the hundreds of thousands a year for their salary, but they were earning, uh, for instance, they earned six million from record deals that they put into the church and forwent that six million. So they're actually putting more money into the church than they were taking away, for instance. So there wasn't really a crime going on, as was the crime uh, that Jerry Falwell put on them. But so, so she had to be eradicated because she was showing everybody up, because she was actually doing the work of Jesus in a way, or she was enacting a sort of the spirit of Jesus within this sort of um, church world, which of course the reactionary evangelicals were not doing at all. So you must sh eradicate those which do the job that expose the fact that your system that promises, um, you know, oneness utopia is not working. So they have to go. Um, so Jim, for instance, her husband was sentenced to 48 years <laughs> for, for um, overselling timeshares, which isn't quite accurate. Obviously, so the church was tied to state at this time. And so there was a lot of influence in the Southwestern United States. And, you know, do you get a free hearing when the best of the um, Anglo-Saxon idea of what state should be is uh, not possible because of the ties to something that's more powerful than them? But this really made me think about the Lacanian idea of the hysteric and the disease and how the sort of overinvestment, the overattachment to things that humans um, manifest is a sign of our division and our subsequent excess. So, you know, Jim Jim was not uh, holier than thou in any way and could have been sentenced to two years in prison, but was sentenced to 48. So obviously that, that shows sort of an excessive disgust, hateness, absolute need to eradicate him, which shows that there is something to hide within the system that he is trying to be eradicated from. 
I mean, I've got a, a gazillion different points, which I will skip uh, because we've got a whole hour to talk about this. Um, but I wanted to talk a little bit as well about what we were talking about last week in terms of hate. I can't believe I didn't make this point last week. I don't think I did. But obviously in 2016, it was really obvious that when um, Trump was um, becoming president, there was this, there were all these slogans being um, said about Trump, anti-Trump slogans. And one slogan was, love Trump's hate. Of course, this is the great Democrat Freudian slip. You just add in an apostrophe after the P before the S, and it is, you love Trump's hate. Not love overcomes hate, but you absolutely libidinally are engaged in Trump's hate. And it's necessary for your... Um, own moral um, jouissance and the fact that your position is entirely correct, your position will get us to a societal political utopia if it weren't for this enemy that is in the way of getting into your utopia. But there's no utopia, so Trump is the, the necessary figure to sustain this moral superiority. And of course, um, I don't know if people know about Jim Baker now, he's sort of a uh, psychotic right wing. Um, preacher on television, a big Trump supporter. He um, is promises, he, he sells end of world prepper kits for the second coming of the Lord or whatever. And Jim was not like this at all before he went into prison, you know, so he was, he was sort of actually a, a very liberal figure in a way, um, very, you know, neutered in that sort of political sense. And in a sense, he, this, this, this treatment drove him mad. So he then became this figure that now is today, you know, um, greatly uh, a sort of a risible figure. But so the point being is that when a, somebody who hates um, doesn't really hate, what can sometimes happen is a system drives the necessary enemy to a point of enacting that which they were accused of in the first place, which is a terrible, terrible tragedy, of course. So there is a dialectic of hate, a dialectic of our own um, uh, implication in enemy making. There have been lots of very recent scandals with the Falwell and his Liberty University, which have shown that he is also, or his him and his family, uh, capable of just as many um, embarrassing things as Jim Baker was accused of, but actually didn't really do. That's a whole other story. Um, but yeah, just Tammy herself. So Tammy was totally non-identitarian. She says, I found this quote that I was going to think of earlier. I didn't think of him as gay. I thought of him as someone I loved. And that was that about her co-host, Jim J. Bullock, that she ended up um, being on television with. So this is not to say that uh, certain groups and classes don't face problems and at different eras, different people are the contingent scapegoat. Um, but we, when we focus on the, we talked about this last week, the, the aesthetics of the issue, the aesthetics embodied by certain groups rather than the undercurrents that have led certain people at contingent moments to be, for example, more represented in the working class for a, for a time when people arrive in a country or um, to be more affected or less affected by um, different dynamics. And also where the market wants us to um, lend our gaze of concern uh, rather than our gaze of concern at those who are the necessary enemies um, who are blamed for all the problems of the situation. You know, this is where the non-identitarian Point is really important so we can get a purchase on what is really going on in society. And just finally, Tammy's life itself was extremely tragic. You know, after this documentary, she ended up getting diagnosed with cancer and she um, had suffered with it very um, publicly. And then the night before her death, she went on to uh, Larry King, 
and was extremely emaciated, looked absolutely terrible, haggard, and she wanted to show, you know, what the reality of being ill was actually like. Obviously, a right-wing sort of um, response to this idea that Tammy's life uh, exposes that life is not, um, we aren't successful, life isn't about avoiding tragedy or tragedies aren't the exception. Tragedies are part of life. Our whole universe exists because of tragedy as such. So tragedy is a necessary thing, not only necessary, it is woven into reality. Um, tragedy brings life to life, tragedy of death that brings life to life. Tragedy is the norm. So we shouldn't say like, you know, right then everybody like it or lump it, get over it, which is the right wing response or the woke response, which is to say, you're lessening the suffering of this group as if tragedy is a contingent thing that we just have to discipline ourselves to um, respect that some people suffer more than others. This, I haven't quite thought through my, um, my point here about the woke response to tragedy, but I feel like I'm getting there. Maybe in a few weeks I'll have something to say. But the actual response that is the left-wing response should be, yes, it is the reality that we live in. It's the sea we swim in, it's tragedy itself. And we should not have a capitalist response to it, but we should have a response which takes into consideration this fact so that we can imagine a better alternative, a better political alternative that responds to tragedy and takes into consideration tragedy and that tragedy undercuts and underpins everything. Uh, so what society can we imagine that takes that into account? So that is all from me. All right, Nina, you're up. Um, yeah, just on this final point about tragedy, I think it's a very important one politically and somebody like Illich, who I obviously spend a lot of time reading and teaching at the moment, um, suggests that basically we live in a in a sort of culture that has forgotten the meaning of suffering and the meaning of tragedy. Um, and I think that one of the implications of this is precisely, as you say, Helen, that people, well, on, on one level, we have a culture that basically denies its reality or often pretends that it doesn't exist, that, you know, death has become very hygienic. It's not really something that is in the midst of life in the way that it was for earlier cultures for various reasons. And at the same time, there's almost like this kind of scarcity of suffering. It's like you say, some groups are allowed to suffer. So even though everybody suffers, even though everybody at one point or another has something wrong with them or they they suffer sadness or loss or illness or you know that something you know negative happens it's almost as if suffering is a zero sum game and there's only a finite amount of amount of sympathy to go round and this seems to be the kind of woke response as you described it so that some groups for example white men or rich people even if they suffer terribly um physically mentally or whatever it doesn't matter because their suffering doesn't count somehow because it's almost like the resentment against them for their uh, position, whether chosen or otherwise. And I don't think anyone really chooses uh, to be born <laughs> well, in the first place, nor do they choose who they are or who their parents are or whether they're from a rich family or a poor family or what the colour of their skin is and all of these other things. Um, somehow those pe people who are in non-oppressed groups, according to the sort of oppression hierarchy, um, don't suffer. Or or if they do suffer, their suffering doesn't count for anything. And I think uh, a truly political uh, response to uh, understanding of suffering would be to say, in the first place, this used to be my Twitter uh, motto, that everybody suffers. 
um, you know, that suffering is not something that only belongs to certain sacred caste groups of people that we've decided who they are. Or, or if they suffer, they suffer somehow worse than other people, even if they uh, pray to the same things, illness or harassment or whatever. So um, I think that's an important starting point, that there's a universality of suffering, if you like, that it's the lot of humanity and that you know, Illich, uh, for one, suggests that a culture that has forgotten its myths and has forgotten its stories, basically, won't be able to deal with loss in the same way, because there's no stories or no myth that can be relied upon in order to make sense of lack or loss in one's life. You know, like, so for example, not everybody can have children, you know, and for some people, this is a terrible, terrible loss. And, and, a, and a lack and something that they have to learn to live with. And at the same time, if you have a culture that suggests, oh, it doesn't matter, you can just buy a child, you know, this is not an adequate way of dealing with, um, you know, the, this uh, seemingly chaotic and unfair reality um, to turn everything into a consumer decision. You know, the idea that if you want something badly enough, you should have it. Um, you know, which is where we're going with the kind of politics of desire gone mad. You know, it's not a question of balancing needs. It's not a question of dealing with suffering or loss or supporting people when they need supporting and everybody has hard times in their life. Um, but rather of, of replacing that kind of, you know, set of narratives and myths with the idea that you can simply buy your way out of problems um, and that anything you want, you should be able to get. Um you know, and the zero sum game then gets kind of um, mapped onto these horrific scenarios where, let's say, someone is ill and they need medical treatment in a country that that forces you to pay for it. Then you enter into a kind of Hunger Games type social um, battle to convince people of your social worth. So, someone who's popular and is trying to raise money for an operation will get more money than someone who isn't popular who might not get enough money to pay for their particular operation, which is an incredibly brutal uh, <laughs> way of uh, apportioning, um, you know, concern um, and, and, and is part of the kind of general asymmetry uh, of things. But I think in, unless we start from the, the, the position that everybody suffers and everybody is capable of suffering, we will no longer have sympathy uh, for many people at all, which will have an overall detrimental effect on everybody. Um, I think that it's much more, this is why Christianity, I think it has a superior story about um, the incompleteness of the human, and in fact, the fallibility of the human, the fact that things that are negative happen all the time, and sometimes we are the cause of it, and sometimes we are the victim of it, and we are both transgressors and transgressed against. It's a much more sophisticated understanding of suffering and, and harm um, than, you know, this kind of moral absolutism that we seem to be surrounded by. Um, to, just to go back to the documentary, yeah, I found it, it very interesting. It was, it was obviously very camp in a way. It had RuPaul as the narrator. You know, Tammy Faye is being positioned, you know, quite understandably as a sort of... Uh, a sort of gay icon in many ways. I mean, not least because she obviously was speaking to to AIDS AIDS sufferers at the time, which you know many right wing Christians presumably were not. Um, and you know, there's something of her character. She's such a trooper. She just keeps going on. She just won't stop. She's absolutely relentless. She keeps singing. You know, even outside court, uh, she is just absolutely filled with this. Uh, you know. 
I don't know, almost military levels of energy. She keeps going to TV stations and getting more and more jobs. And, you know, she 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 becomes very, very appealing as a character throughout the um, documentary. You know, you, you, you feel very much that this is uh, somebody whose who's life and decisions you, you, you might understand in a way. And, and she says at one point, you know, I, I think the main problem was that I was naive, you know, that in a way she got kind of taken advantage of by by Farwell, by other people who wanted to take away what she'd built. And, you know, they start off with this incredibly kitsch, like, puppet show. And, you know, it's, it's just very sort of um, endearing uh, in a way. And, the, and when she talks about being closer, brought closer to her daughter, who had been quite rebellious, who also seems quite a character in her own right, it's very interesting in the documentary. You know, it's very moving when she talks about how her illness brought her back closer with her daughter and her daughter says the same thing. Um, the, the character, the person, I should say, I mean, these are real people that I found hardest to understand, and maybe this relates to the scapegoating question, was was Jessica Hahn, actually, who is this woman who is who's basically part of the downfall um, of um, Jim Baker um, and thereby Tammy, who who is, as, as Helen said, I think, uh, unduly blamed by association. It's not clear at all that that Tammy Faye was deeply involved in any kind of financial corruption or what the extent of that was, what she knew about it when she goes back to visit the doomed, but frankly, amazingly dystopian, uh, collapsed Christian theme park, which is obviously amazing and looks like a crazed fever dream. Um, you know, she she points out this very minor detail, which is the the paint is peeling on one of the chairs and she said Jim would have never left it like this. And it's, it's actually a very moving moment because you, you understand actually that she's very, very still very sympathetic to Jim and the ambitions that they had for this project. And, you know, she, she, she doesn't seem like the kind of woman who would have been, you know, I don't know, manipulating the books or doing something particularly suspect. She might've got along with things perhaps wittingly or otherwise, but she, she doesn't seem like a malevolent, person and of course maybe I'm being naive here too but in any case there's this this other figure who is Jessica Hahn who who somehow is involved with Jim Baker but Jim Baker pays her off at the time and it's unclear I think whether Jim Baker um you know does something really really bad and pays her off or whether he he's set up and has sex with her and pays her off because he doesn't want the story to come out, but not that, you know, not that she was unwilling. And it's all very, very strange. And then the footage of Jessica Hahn, who who then becomes a kind of um, a playboy model, and you get this very weird, sexy 80 footage of her writhing around with her breasts out. And so so in a way, she uses the the sexual relationship with Jim, uh, with Jim Baker to to start a career as a... As, as a sexy model and and I, you know she goes on to be a, to be a tv uh character and an actress and it's there's something very very odd about about that so so Jessica Hahn presents herself as the kind of victim of Jim Baker but it's not obvious that that's the sole story in a way whether he was set up and then Jerry Farwell comes along and obviously wants this satellite 
Um, and then starts accusing Jim Baker of homosexuality as well, which is another very strange moment um, in which I think, you know, and I very much agree with Helen's analysis, but this kind of pylon of negative things, it's like you can't just cancel someone a bit. You have to sort of throw everything at them. You have to send them to prison forever. You have to demonize them. You have to accuse them of everything. You know, and I, I have people who did try to do this to me. And it's and it's very, very weird. It's like this desperate attempt to prove that someone is kind of um, irredeemably evil or so evil that they can no longer count as the sort of person that you think you are somehow, like, and that everything they do reinforces their evilness. Um, and so everything is kind of perceived in this very, very terrible light. And so Jerry Fowell, it seems obvious from the documentary, wants this thing. He wants their TV thing or wants their satellite or wants their power <laughs> that they have. And therefore is prepared to sort of lie about them. And, you know, the list that he proposes to them, he then says, they came to me with all of these really awful demands. And they were so extreme, even though it looks like he was the one who said, I can give you these things. And again, they seem more naive. And I wonder about this, the dimension of the scapegoat in relation to naivety. You know, that someone like Tammy Faye is is incredibly energetic, but also very naive, like very, very trusting of, you know, perhaps of her husband, perhaps of, you know, she's obviously heartbroken when she finds out about the uh, affair or night or whatever it was with this, with with uh, Jessica Hahn. She's obviously very upset when her TV stations that she obviously has put so much energy in are taken away from her. And I don't think she kind of quite understands how manipulative and um, envious and horrible <laughs> and um, calculating other people can be, I think, simply because she is not like that um and i think it's very very sweet that she then marries this rogue guy who's who then gets sent to prison for his own you know possible financial you know corruption in relation to the the project um and his description of her is also very moving like he clearly loves her very much and she clearly loves him and there's there's something very 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 sweet about um all of her genuine you know affection for everybody involved in in these things and i and in that sense i do think that she exhibits um a kind of christianity at the practical level at the everyday level she is somebody who is capable of um forgiving others you know in a way that that makes her far her heart far bigger than those who are have used her or manipulated her or lied to her and in a way that's also one of her great strengths as well as the fact that she always seems to be singing in this very very <laughs> extreme way uh, which is both sort of charming and slightly alarming um and yeah I'll, I'll i'll leave it there all right now it's my turn tammy faye was a christian televangelist who became an lgbt icon this documentary was made in 2000 seven years before she died of cancer it was made with her cooperation and it is fairly kind to her husband, Jim Baker. It does not mention that Baker was a prosperity preacher or that he was accused of rape. Tammy Faye defended him and her second husband, Roe Mesner, until the end, and the film implies that both are innocent of the crimes that brought them to prison. In the years after the documentary was made, Baker went on to get himself a new show. In place of prosperity gospel, Baker now pushes survivalism. Recently, he's been in legal trouble for promising false COVID cures. In his book, I Was Wrong, Baker admits he never read the Bible all the way through until he went to prison. I'm not in a position to judge what really happened, 
but it's clearly more complicated than this documentary makes out. I don't think there's anything useful I can say about whether Tammy Faye and Jim Baker were knowingly cheating people. I'm not sure I'm interested in the question of whether they were con artists anyway. But that's not to say this film doesn't have its merits. It prompted me to think about Christian televangelism in a new way. Today, when we talk about televangelism, we associate it with cynical scams. It seems obvious to most of us that televangelism is not legitimate theological praxis, that it is a business, that the preachers are entertainers who make money off vulnerable people. But in the beginning, when televangelism first started, it probably wasn't obvious that it would turn out that way. Some of the people who got into televangelism probably had sincere intentions. They probably wanted to help Christianity remain relevant in the modern era, to adapt it to mass media and global capitalism. How would they do that? Well, they'd make Christianity marketable. A marketable form of Christianity would need to be very comfortable with capitalism, with making money. If it wasn't, how would it compete? Christians who reject wealth aren't very good at growing media empires. It would also need to be very inclusive and therefore very relaxed about sin. Christians who reject sinners aren't very good at growing their audiences. I don't know if Tammy Faye and Jim Baker were well-intentioned televangelists, but if they were, they would need to take Christianity in a liberal capitalist direction. Baker's prosperity preaching synthesized Christianity with capitalism. Tammy Faye's willingness to include LGBTs synthesized Christianity with liberalism. To save Christianity from liberal capitalism, Christianity would have to become liberal capitalist. Of course, once that happens, what's the point of it? I think this is why, ultimately, evangelical Christianity could not explicitly embrace both capitalism and liberalism at the same time. If it did that, it wouldn't have a distinctive identity. To preserve its distinctiveness, this new kind of Christianity would have to substantively embrace liberal capitalism while stylistically rejecting it. This is why ultimately Tammy and Jim had to go. They were too obvious. They conceded too much in too blatant a way. Their network was acquired by Jerry Falwell. Falwell was rich, but he denounced prosperity preaching. He also drew a sharp friend-enemy distinction between the Christian conservative movement and the LGBT community. By maintaining a superficial distance from liberal capitalism, Falwell made his liberal capitalist version of Christianity more digestible for committed Christians. By appearing to fight liberal elites, he helped lead Christians into making their peace with the system those liberal elites led. Tammy Faye and Jim Baker moved too quickly. Under Falwell's leadership, Christianity moved slowly toward the same destination. Today, 66% of white mainline Protestants approve of same-sex marriage. In 2001, only 38% did. Catholic support has risen from 40% to 61%. Black Protestant support has risen from 30% to 44%. Even evangelical Protestant support has risen from 13% to 29%. Religions don't survive by resisting political and economic structures. They survive by finding ways to legitimate those structures. The types of religion that survive are not the purest or the best, but those most able to compete in an economic and political context. In a liberal capitalist society, competitive forms of Christianity must be liberal and capitalist. The others fade into the background. This is the fate of any philosophy that attempts to resist political and economic systems without an alternative material base. Tammy Faye remains interesting because she remains the future of Christianity. She was a living premonition, 
and Christians react to her with the same hopes and fears they feel when they reflect on the future of their faith. Words alone cannot stand against power because power can redefine words. No number of learned theologians can overcome the prosperity preacher who never read the Bible start to finish, for he rides upon the wheel of history, and they stand in its way. So I have obviously done immense amounts of research in terms of were Jim and Tammy guilty in any way? And I would say not. So um, I was wrong. So Jim and Tammy, so this idea of them being naive is like a, is a real factor. Very childlike people. They even look very physically childlike. Mm-hmm. So Jim's book I was wrong sort of written in a way that he felt he had to write it in order to sort of show that you know he'd learned his lesson or you know not sort of really grasping the totality of what had happened much better book is miscarriage of justice excellent book um written by a law professor so it's interesting because I have to say I agree that Jim and Tammy were capitalists, as in, I believe that they, the, the, the difference I would have is that I do not think, in fact, that I know that they weren't, and also in terms of the Jessica Hahn thing, Jessica Hahn thing, Jim was set up with this man, woman, Jessica, for various reasons. One wonders whether part of the reason is that they would have something on Jim. And as you say, there were these contradictory accusations. So he's gay. And he sleeps with this woman. You know, so, so when you when you see the way someone's cancelled, they're always cancelled from multiple directions. There's a, a figure today who gets massive piles on on Twitter. I don't agree with her position, but she will get attacked from absolutely every direction. So it's you know, you you represent so many things for different for different people, and also at the same time, um, certain anything can, as you said, Nina, become a um, a, a, a representation of your essential disgusting evil and it's not like you're a bad person naughty child get told off and get reinstated it's like you are a virus a cancer that has to be eliminated and um so obviously things like when somebody is talking very reasonably and they mention the words say that nazis were bad obviously the word nazi will be taken and quoted she is as quote unquote Nazi, having had written a whole essay about how you, know, you don't agree with Nazis or whatever. Um, so the Jim and Tammy thing, where I would say that they weren't capitalists in the, ascent, in the, in the sense that Jerry Falwell is, is maybe in terms of, and this, okay, there's various things I want to say. First of all, a morality question. Being a capitalist is not like a, a moral thing that we have to say, oh, you're a disgusting capitalist and oh, I'm so above this because I'm not a capitalist. It's like, we, we live in a system, right? <laughs> what, are we, what are we gonna do? And it, you know, it, it, so I, I'm very much not against m- the morals of them having sort of a house in Palm Springs or what have you. And obviously everything that they did was highly, highly exaggerated. So for instance, they had, there's a story of them having a dog kennel with air conditioning or, you know, dog, a dog mansion sort of thing. And basically it was like, the dogs in sort of Minnesota, I think they were for a while, were freezing and they had to have a kennel, they had to put a heater in it, you know, so everything gets completely blown out of proportion. And as as I think I said earlier, like the numbers don't add up, they put in way more money into their affairs than they took out. Um, But it's, it's this religious dimension, which maybe, okay, yes, they're capitalists, 
differentiates them from the sort of more cynical Falwell, whereby for Jim and Tammy, it wasn't about the spoils. It was about the um, belief in their mission and the belief that their mission was something that was going to, you know, make the world a better place and endow the world with sort of, you know, a, you know, a, a, you know. Of course, this is all very utopian. This religious idea of you, we just have to sort of get to the right place, and then God will come back down to earth, and we'll live in sort of heaven on heaven on earth, whatever. Um, so, so that that's the sort of you know this sort of promise, and because of the promise, they get themselves in over their heads financially because they believe that they had they have this mission to set up this this great sort of empire and this 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 kingdom in in Disneyland meets God. Whereas you know so, so they're slight but but at the same time I do understand that this makes them potentially more capitalists than traditional capitalists. And I think this is the thing where the, the conservative capitalist um sometimes get a gets a worse reputation than say the liberal capitalist or different forms of capitalists or people who are sort of savers rather than spenders, essentially. Because the, I guess the point I'm trying to make is that for me, capitalism is operates in this religious mode of the ideology of promise. Um, and it doesn't matter what it looks like aesthetically. It's still capitalism. It's all cap like whether you say, for instance, are training for the Olympics and believe that training five hours a day is going to get you there faster or that the Olympic medal is going to give you um, sit, you know, close the gap of lack and you're going to feel this essential oneness and all of your ills will be cured. That's still the same idea as capitalism itself. Yeah, I, I want to say I'm, I'm not yeah. making a moral point. Yeah. My argument is, you know, let's take as a presumption that they had good intentions and they were just looking to spread Christianity through modern mass media. The material context in which they're operating would nonetheless require that a competitive form of Christianity, the kind of Christianity which could spread through mass media, be okay substantively with capitalism and mm -hmm. be okay substantively with liberal pluralism, right? That would be the kind that would spread most easily. And the point they make in this documentary is that these guys, you know, Tammy and Jim, launch these shows, the shows build huge audiences, and then they get shuffled out the door and some more conservative figure steps in who runs the network in a more political us versus them kind of way, right? So Tammy and Jim attract a lot of interest in this Christian movement. And then what mm -hmm. they do gets co-opted by some figure who's more Schmidian and then tries to weaponize the audience that they create, right? So I think that it, I, I'm not really saying good people, bad people, I don't really know. And, and, and I believe in reserving judgment when I don't really know, meaning you know, both, I, I don't think they're guilty. I don't necessarily think they're innocent. I just don't know. I just don't know. Mm -hmm. And I don't know who's, who's a good person or who's a bad person. But even supposing that everybody, and Falwell too, let's suppose that all of them got into televangelism because they wanted to spread or wanted to defend or protect some kind of Christianity, the material situation in which they're trying to do that would force the kind of Christianity they're disseminating mm -hmm. to take on this kind of form. Yeah. Right. And then I think for political purposes, it became untenable to move that quickly in the direction of a fusion with liberal capitalism. And so 
to, to make this Christian audience politically useful for establishing a power base, some aspects of this had to be held back or laundered, right? So you, you couldn't be overtly for a straightforward synthesis, even though that's the thing that could spread most easily to uninitiated people in society. If you wanted to get people off the street who had fallen out of Christianity or weren't that interested in it, you know, back into the fold, interested in Christianity again, you would have the kind of message which Tammy and, and Jim had, because that message is not that different from the liberal capitalist values which those people already have. It would add something of the sacred to the value set they already live by. Whereas Falwell's project is more overtly uh, couched as a defense of a traditional type of Christianity, which makes it less attractive to the uninitiated, but better at weaponizing an existing base for, for political ends. But I, the point I want to make is that even with Falwell, even with this more defensive political type of Christianity, it's still a long march to the same destination because mm -hmm. underneath all of that agonism and aggressive social conservatism, everybody mm -hmm. is still gradually moving to the same place that they were moving under Tammy and Jam. And so really, it doesn't matter all that much whether it's Falwell's movement or Tammy Faye's movement. It all goes to the same place because the background <laughs> conditions force it to mm -hmm. the same place, regardless of the personality or the intentions of the individual or the moral qualities of the individuals leading the movement. The one thing, okay, maybe where I differ in my analysis is that, um, so, because I do, so liberalism obviously promises a form of universalism, but I would say that it can never get, to, it can never be universal in terms of universal, including lack, contradiction, the scapegoat, the outsider. Like, Capitalism always has to have um, an, like another or a border to cross, right? So I guess the point that I'm making is that is that approach that Tammy represents in this, as, as, as uh, Nina was talking about, this Christian, in, not a, not a, in, in a purely Paulinian sense. Paul, Paul is basically like Hegel, Freud. Lacan, Marx, like they're all Paulinians, where basically the cross is the end of meaning. Like there's no, nothing means anything. I mean, obviously she believes in God, but basically there's no God. Contradiction is all that there is. Like liberalism does not tolerate that position. And maybe the thing is, I think the thing is that Tammy, obviously, I mean, she's pretty liberal in general, but like she does embody this and again, like embodying something isn't going to get us really any fun. <laughs> Actually, I mean, yes and no. I mean, this is, the, this is the, the, the tricky thing of obviously you have to have like a philosophical insight that maybe illuminates what political situation we're dealing with to enact political change. Like I was talking about Marx's living flower, like to get to the living flower, we have to expose the, the opium and the chains, you know. Um, so I just, I just don't, I wouldn't say that liberalism is a true universal, basically. And that basically Christianity, a type of Christianity, Hegelian, Paulinian, Shizekian maybe, it provides an insight. And I'm not saying Tammy understood, like, understood this philosophical insight, but she did treat people in a certain way, which provides a way of understanding how capitalism functions, how religion functions, and what we are actually dealing with in terms of the reality in which we live, on which to build 
let's say, politically something. I don't know if that makes sense. I mean, I wonder if they're... <laughs> no. They're, I don't know. I'm just thinking about this, you know, e- exemptions from the regime, you know, like whether mm-hmm. they're... You know, of course, in a way, everything is, you know, we're all liberal subjects. We're all, you know, subject to the same ideology and the same imperatives and the same processes and, and so on. And there's there's no sort of getting away from that. And that's why I think a lot of contemporary political positioning does look like LARPing, because in a way, it doesn't really matter what you say you are. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. uh, you're, you're an anti-fascist. I mean, everybody's an anti-fascist. Uh, you're an anarchist. You're a communist. You're a socialist. You're, you know, I mean, it, it matters in some ways, um, but but in many ways it doesn't. It's It, it can be just a, as much of a kind of ideological self-descriptor as anything else um, yeah. for all of the effect it has. And, and this isn't to say anything about the practical work that people might be doing or that the way they might be involved in their local community or volunteering. And, and of course, the relationship between like activism and charity is very longstanding and lots of, you know, the, the, the sort of famous line about like Marxism uh, in Britain owes more to Methodism than it does to Marx, you know, that actually there's a kind of like Christian socialism in practice. Um, um, so, yeah, just to conclude this point about... Um, almost like character and I suppose one of the uh, capacities or um, elements of documentary filmmaking that's particularly uh, specific to the genre and and effective when it works is this access to this personality and all of its flaws and all of its uh, you know the the way in which her her house is so very kitsch and you know, but so very sort of charming, and in this very curious way, and you you just become more and more sort of infatuated with this with this woman. Somehow, you just sort of really want you're really rooting for her. Um, and I was very sad afterwards to read that she had died of cancer ultimately, and in about I think two thousand and seven or something like this. And and obviously, there's been this kind of resurrection of interest in her because there's this new film coming out, which I think has the same title as the documentary. Um, that has some famous actress playing her. And it was actually very disconcerting to watch the trailer for the film after the documentary because it was deeply uncanny to see someone pretending to be her who doesn't look anything like her, really. And it was, like, very odd. Um, so I, I don't know, perhaps... I mean, it'd be interesting to discuss why there is this sort of revival of her as a character, like why she might be relevant to 2021 or whenever the film's coming out. Um, what is it that has this appeal... Um, an ongoing appeal, um, and maybe Helen, you know more about. That. So I obviously have like an ext- <laughs> uh, like a, a ooh, unmute myself. I have a theory, obviously, about this. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know if Benjamin's going to agree with this, but and basically, I feel that it's it's the division of Trump's America, right? And Dolly Parton is another person mm. who became very popular at the end of Trump's, um, you know rain, whatever you want to call it. But <laughs> she basically, she embodies, the thing that really drew me to Tammy Faye, and so we're developing a, a TV series at the moment. Our original film was called An American Contradiction. It's that she embodies, the reason why she's so fascinating, it's like she embodies this bridging of the gap that seems impossible in terms of this time where everything is so divided. We almost have two economies, two, polit- you know, two political narratives, very, very divisive, and it's very arbitrary. And as we were talking the other day about the aesthetics of each side, like 
it's really, it's really sort of on this weird imaginary level, imaginary in the Lacanian sense, not in a, like an adjectival sense. But so she's somebody who embodies almost this impossible crossing of the divide, and and Dolly Parton does it as well. And I think we're talking about figures like Prince in the past mm-hmm. who have these managed to appeal to a universal, you know, and um, beyond sort of these categories that are established in the name of the system or of of capitalism. That we need if we if we this is the thing that I think is so interesting as well. I mean, the contradictions operate on aesthetic levels and ideological levels and philosophical levels, because as we've saying, you know, that that the the project project for the park is very much within this ideology of promise. But then Tammy really um, expresses this idea of of the tragic, you know, that everything is undermined by the tragic, and she sort of um, really lives into the fact that everybody um, experiences tragedy. Um, the other thing, I mean, it's, so you have figures like Princess Diana, who I think is more like the Titanic. The Titanic, I think, is something that, interestingly enough, it's just like weird anecdotes. So obviously we're Belfast, Titanic City, um, and very close to Tammy's son, Jay. He comes to Belfast all the time, loves Belfast, loves the sort of like tragic place anyway. But, um, so uh, Jim's televangelist center now is in this place called Branson, Missouri, and it has the world's biggest museum, a Titanic museum. It's like, why is there a Titanic museum in this random Missouri town in the Ozarks? And then also, um, Tammy was called by people in her family, and Jim especially, the unsinkable Molly Brown. <laughs> was obviously the woman from the Titanic who survived. Um, so, so the Titanic, basically... I think I, I was really used to be obsessed with this quote. I read it on a strange to a million times and I can't remember the quote, but it was somebody who survived the Titanic and how it was this event that captured the turning of an epoch. So 1912, 1914, obviously, World War I, the expansion of sort of a, a neoliberalism, essentially, in my opinion, but I could be wrong, but in a certain way. Um, you also have, you go from this very class-based society to something else. And so obviously within the um, within the Titanic, you know, there's, there's the real narrative of, you know, who survives by class. Um, the it really captures all of these sort of like currents within a within a what was going on at the time of concern. So, you know, humans desire to mechanize and to be the fastest and to whatever, and you know, being undermined by nature. There's great brutality of the thing in terms of, you know, then what was going to happen later, how, you know, everything suddenly you know, we in this sort of like prairie quiet of the olden days, being thrust into modernity, and so events like that they they capture the imagination. Even though the Titanic was not like that huge a tragedy in terms of deaths compared to other things that have happened, other disasters, it really captures something because it it crystallizes all these different currents at the same time. And Princess Diana, similarly, in the nineties. The people's princess, obviously, she was sort of like more of a, a star than a princess. She was this person who was very human in many ways, and people believed that they were like her. But then at the same time, she was this sort of lofty star. And how could she die? Because she was almost like a, a goddess, you know, descended to earth. How could this happen? How could, you know, just as sort of the ideological thing of like, you know, we, we're going to mechanize and burst into the future and get to New York this quickly, you know, Um the the people's princess is the saintly woman here on earth. How does she die? You know, so I think there are these events at certain times that really capture multiple currents. And so obviously, in the eighty, this documentary, as we saw, she was sort of struggling to get back onto TV, so she wasn't that much in the public consciousness in two thousand. 
but um, in uh, today, yeah, what is it about today? The other thing I would say is that just as much as she's back in the public consciousness, people absolutely hate her. Well, that's an interesting lens. I think as I was, was thinking about it, it was more in terms of, of comparing televangelism to left media mm-hmm. and good intentions filtered through a market system producing a result which just turns you deeper into the thing that you were trying to escape. Yeah. And, and that was kind of the thing that kept coming up for me. So I think at a time when there's a lot of people who are a little bit disenchanted 2016ers, who, whether they were for Trump or they were for Bernie, they were trying to in some way turn away and they launched all these media publications of both right-wing and left-wing varieties trying to spread a new message. And that new message was oftentimes drawing on old messages. And even in the case of the left, whether it's drawing on Marx or drawing on Chomsky or drawing on whoever it is, there were all of these Debs, these historical figures that they're trying to get people interested in, kind of like Jesus, you know, get them back interested in this historical tradition. But the process of selling that historical tradition in the contemporary context turns the historical tradition into another face of the contemporary, turns it back in on itself, and papers another layer of ideology on top. And I think that part of what is interesting about this is it's, it's a reminder that once upon a time, the Christian movement was also a kind of pure attempt to rescue modernity from what it was becoming. And therefore, it has something in common with uh, left-wing or right-wing movements today that are criticizing the center. And these these figures who seem to embody the original spirit of that thing are attractive as we try to imagine some way of getting out from under this, because it feels like we've just papered so many additional layers of garbage on top of the thing over the last five or six years, that these movements have just created an even more uh, hidden mm-hmm. liberal liberal centrist ideology. So that was kind of what I was was thinking about, but maybe that's not what everybody else would be thinking. But this about. is where I think. Okay, so this is where, like, maybe I get accused of being an idealist thing, but like here, but I just I think it's in Marx, it's in Hegel, it's in Freud. It's the ordinary unhappiness. It's sort of transcendence here on earth. You know, Chris David talks about it. You know, imminence becoming transcendence, imminence becoming transcendence through just like transference and countertransference, and there's no solution. So the thing becoming the thing, you know. And so obviously, so for instance, like this idea of the tragic, right? The Tammy's life shows us that life as such is tragic and there's no getting around it. Um, the, you know, the conservative will say, just, you know, buckle up sunshine and get used to it. The, um, the woke will be like, oh yeah, well, you think you're suffering. Look at this person who is worse off than you. And who is this singled out, you know, it's like suffering is sequestered into a group, which may be true, you know, because two things can be true at once. We have the hysteric and the disease, you know, for instance, and the disease is of course, certain groups suffer more, but then the the, the sort of um, hypochondriac is like, you know, and this means that this is the absolute and these are the emancipatory subject that only they embody and can save us. And then we can marketize the aesthetics of what they, you know, what they embody so that there is a promise that we can get to the other side of whatever it is. But the answer is actually like, no, the tragic exists 
And just as Marx talks about the living flower or Freud, ordinary unhappiness, we have to see this and tarry with it. And so obviously, yeah, we have that, that's, that's, that's Tammy's life on screen and showing how tragic that was. But also I do think, and I could be wrong, I could be wrong, like, you know, maybe this is like the next promise that's going to be marketized and I'll be the latest woke or whatever, but I don't think it can be marketized because it's not promising anything. It's, it's beyond a set. So, you know, Tammy is a non-identitarian. Tammy is not an essentialist. And I think the thing is, you know, perhaps we could, we could argue that they, yes, they, they, they had this sort of capitalist, um, you know, drive towards a success of this ministry. But to a certain degree, okay, obviously, yes, who did fall well engender the failure to, te- to neuter them so that they could, you know, sort of process and digest history towards Christianity with liberalism, as we see now. I, I shared something with you recently, what contemporary evangelicalism looks like. I remember saying a few weeks ago that it was like, uh, evangelicalism is now woke and people are like, no, it isn't. It's like, yes, it is. Um, but, but um, you know, what, what, did their project fail because they also... It, would never get there because they weren't ethically capitalist. Well, they had a Christian Disneyland that was the number three theme park in the country. So they did get quite far with it. They couldn't raise enough money to sustain that. But what they were doing was enormous in its scale. I think the main problem is that Jim Baker is a traveling preacher who was trying to run not just a business, not just a media empire, Mm -hmm. but a physical theme park with physical buildings. And he was just not at all the right person to run a theme park of anything remotely like that scale. Uh, And it it reminds me of university administrators who get fixated on buildings and think that by building buildings, they're leaving a legacy when what they're really doing is increasing the budget Mm -hmm. what the university has to support and sustain, and therefore making the university more fragile so that when there are future financial shocks, they can't pay to maintain all these buildings and they go bankrupt. They're endangering the university that they imagine they're contributing to. And that that doesn't come down to there being anything fundamentally wrong with the project of running a university, but something wrong with the the paradigm of, of management. But also, I mean, within capitalism as such, like its success is its failure. Like it will inevitably, like it has to inevitably fail. It has to ine- inevitably be undercut. And that theme park just had to get bigger and bigger and bigger. And there was, it was never big enough. And the lack was that it always needed to be larger and always needed more buildings. Mm-hmm. It, it, the theme park grew like capitalism. This and it is grew true. to the point where it couldn't sustain itself. This is true. I mean, maybe I, and th- th- this is, there's, there's something within Jim and Tammy, that I do, like, I will, I will, I will <laughs> not give up on in terms of this element of the Christian in a Paulinian sense that I think is aligned with the best of Marx. And obviously, this is something that, like, I, Tammy is not a philosopher, you know. <laughs> And Jim obviously ended up in prison and is a is a sort of um you know end of days preacher. So I'm not saying Lots that, of philosophers know, sort of... have ended up in prison. <laughs> but I I okay. This is a, yeah. 
I mean, I guess this is just what I think in terms of the universal and the universal of contradiction. And I think that Tammy in a way embodied it. Yeah, I, I think it's it's very hard to imagine anyone disliking her, either in real life or in her depictions. Like she's she's just, you know, relentless and charming in her relentlessness and, and you know, perhaps because her her Christianity is also her failing or vice versa, or there's something about her 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 lack that is somehow Christian in a way that official Christianity doesn't quite capture. Yeah. Yeah, I think some of the difference in perspective here comes from whether the focus is on Tammy Faye or on a kind of system of televangelism as mediated through Tammy Faye's experience of it. Yeah, I mean, obviously, I'm not pro televangelism, and obviously, televangelism is highly capitalistic. And I do, I'm talking about Tammy, and in a way, Jim. I think Jim ended up being like a horribly treated scapegoat who then became what he was accused of being. But yeah, and Tammy, I mean, and this is maybe this is also comes down to how we are all within capitalism. Even if, even if, for example, we embody, you know, what Jesus in this Paulinian sense, yes, we're still, we're still not beyond the muddy waters, you know. And so, and it's not like also, oh, we have these individual insights at all. All I'm saying is that the Paulinian insight of X marks the spot of, of the cross and of contradiction gives us an understanding of subjectivity, material reality, and maybe allows us to see what we're dealing with in, an, in a way that pure logic or reason or whatever don't. And that can allow us to pick the living flower which is, I think, creating a system that corresponds to this tragic reality that we live in. That's a very interesting perspective. And now we've got to <laughs> cut it off because we're hitting the hour mark. So thank you guys so much for listening. We're going to go over to our B-side now, which you can find on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash the lack podcast. Hope to see you there. And we hope you have a wonderful rest of the day. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye.